the Star Trek comic book review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 83, recorded May 17th, 2012. Yeah, so we're starting up the summer of 1992 with the uh, the titles that came out in August and September. Cool. And uh, as everybody knows, because I'm sure they remember, because they were following along at this time, that DC was really cranking out the Star Trek books uh, the summer of 92. Yeah. We had one new book a week. A week, Donovan? You say a week? It's true. Four books a month. Wow. Well, we definitely are going to do two Septembers in this episode. For the original series. And then next week we'll do The Next Generation for these two months. Excellent. So we'll be doing uh, issues 34, 35, and 36. That's true. That is true. So um, last week we did the uh, Dead of Honor graphic novel, which was, was just which was a fairly huge one. So it's kind of nice to get into these little, I don't know, fluffier books, but even though it's starting off a, a long miniseries within itself. Right. So I found that, that reading these books went a lot quicker um, <laughs> this week than last week. Huh. Well, I guess saying that, you want to just jump straight into the first book? Please. All right, so uh, this is Star Trek 34, released August 1992 by uh, Gold Key Comics, entitled Filler Issue. Uh, um, uh, uh, Was that wrong? Gold Key? Oh, that's right. This was DC Comics. This is DC, yes, yes. But uh, just with all the randomness that we're about to get into, I really had a gold key vibe throughout this whole thing. Aha! Aha! So this is your way of putting a little, slipping a little uh, commentary right in the front. Yeah, a little barb right at the beginning. A little barb. Stick it deep. All right. Right, and it's not actually called filler issue. It's actually called the tree of life, the branches of heaven. Very, uh, I think cool filler sounding had a better ring to it, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes, a better ring to it. So, a very deep sounding uh, title, doesn't it? Yeah, for a very, uh, I think it was a very light hearted book, but uh, I guess we'll we can talk about that after the synopsis, indeed. Uh, but just like uh, a few weeks ago, we did a next generation filler episode or issue. Uh, this one is not written by the normal staff, and it doesn't fall right after the events of uh, issue number 33. So I don't quite know where it fits in, but um, it, it's not a direct continuation of 33 since Sulu is still on the ship, and in 33 he went off to do the Excelsior. It's very much a standalone little piece of writing. Right, and it very could really standalone. benefit from a little blurb at the beginning the events in this book take place before issue number 31 or something like that right but oh well all right so the writer is david devries the artist is jan duracima the inker is pablo marcos letterer is bob pinaha colorist is tom mccraw and editor is kim yale 
So the cover is an interesting one in that it shows the bridge of the Enterprise in a state of disarray. Uh, there's flames actually licking around the main viewer. And at the navigation station, Spock is looking back at Kirk, who is shaking hands with a very angry-looking David Marcus, wearing a Starfleet uniform. The caption at the top says, Kirk's son returns, the resurrection of David Marcus. So the story starts off with the captain's log. The Enterprise has picked up a damaged freighter called the Carter. The crew of that ship claimed that they scanned a M-class planet nearby. Kirk and company head over to investigate. Once at the planet, Kirk beams down with Spock and McCoy. Kirk comments that the planet reminds him exactly like Earth's Grand Canyon. McCoy, being the grouchy old man that he is, walks away complaining that all rock climbers are never happy unless they're hanging by their fingertips above a bottomless pit. Just then, McCoy almost falls into a huge pit that no one had seen before. Spock scans the hole and claims that it is indeed bottomless. The three stare into the abyss and discuss how many cultures in the universe have similar stories about the Tree of Life. Kirk gives a brief explanation of the Norse mythology uh, of Asgard that pales in comparison to Thor's explanation to Natalie Portman in the, uh, the recent Marvel movie. But no sooner has he explained this about the rainbow and the tree uh, than suddenly a rainbow comes from the sky, lands into the hole, and a giant beanstalk-looking thing comes up and stretches out into the heavens. As the branches and roots fan out, Spock states that Vulcans also have a similar belief. And in their belief, the tree of life gave birth to all plant life in the universe. With that, the planet erupts with vegetation. Spock's scans show that these are indeed real life forms and not illusions. Kirk tries to call out uh, to the Enterprise for a beam out, but he's unable to get in contact with the ship. The trio reminisce about the amusement park episode from the original series. Back then, whatever they wished for became true. McCoy remembers Sulu fighting with a samurai warrior. And with that, a samurai warrior appears and cuts McCoy's arm. McCoy wishes Sulu was there. Ta-da! Sulu appears with his katana and no shirt. Oh my. The very fit Sulu starts to battle the samurai, but is eventually ran through by the warrior. Kirk is able to hammer punch the samurai in the back of the head, knocking him out. McCoy starts to work on Sulu, but it's looking pretty grave. Spock says that none of this is real, and that anything that they might wish would become true. With that, Kirk gets a faraway look in his eye and vanishes. Spock tells McCoy that Kirk has vanished into his own reality because he did not voice his wish. McCoy says that he only wants to be on the Enterprise so that he can work on Sulu. Swish! The two are now in sickbay, and McCoy is working feverishly on Sulu. He tells Spock that they might be too late. Just as Sulu's vitals fall and a monotone flatline is heard throughout the sickbay. McCoy takes his failure out on Spock. Uh, and then Spock says that Sulu's just fine. And with that, Sulu hops up out of bed and says, Thank you, Doctor, and is no worse for wear. McCoy relents and agrees that it is their own thoughts that's causing all these changes. 
and admits that they are still on the planet. And with that, sickbay fades away, and they return next to the Tree of Life. Spock tells McCoy that he thinks he knows where Kirk went to, and he asks McCoy to return to the ship. With that, a transporter beam suddenly appears, and McCoy is gone. Spock walks into an old West saloon. Kirk is there with a few ladies. A drunk patron of the bar starts a gunfight with Kirk. Kirk quickly mows down him with ease. Spock then apologizes to this Kirk, saying that this was a dream of a young man. He needs to find the dream of the post-Star Trek V version of Kirk. With that, Spock appears on the bridge of the original refitted Enterprise from the Star Trek II era. Kirk is in the command seat, sitting next to a David Marcus Kirk, who is standing there by his side. They are in a heated battle with some Klingon bastards. Spock tries to break Kirk out of his dream, but he thinks that this Spock has just gone crazy. Spock is able to point out that until he started to confront Kirk, that nothing in his reality was a surprise. That everything was exactly the way he wanted to be because it was his dream. Kirk admits it, but he does not want to lose David, the son that is now following in his, his footsteps. But he eventually relents and the bridge vanishes into the original rocky surface of the planet. Spock calls for two to beam up. Sometime later, the trio are, are aboard the Enterprise. Kirk's closing captain's log states that he has recommended that the planet should be off-limits. McCoy asks, how do they know that they're not still in a dream? Spock then tells McCoy that the Doctor is the tree from which all logic grows. This unexpected compliment is enough proof for McCoy that he knows that this is indeed the real world. The end. The lump bum. I kind of... I, <laughs> I, I like the joke at the end. I hated the joke at the end. Oh, come on. I thought it was very in keeping with the story, and I thought it was funny. Seeing Spock <laughs> choose that, that wording, I thought was very... Uh... I thought it was entertaining. I liked it. So, do you think that's enough proof to prove that they're not in the dream world? Yes. Because Spock would never say that. And McCoy would never expect him to say that. Right. Do you know You know where I think they are? <laughs> a dream within a dream and an inception? Uh, I, I think they're still in the Nexus. Oh my gosh. That's another one. That's another one like this. Right. I was getting a big Nexus vibe, especially with the uh, dream within a dream thing. Well, and... is, is, is that what the Nexus was? Oh, oh. I'm yeah. Um, let... There was a lame explanation Spock gave, which you mercifully uh, uh, did, did not recount to us. But whatever the source of this planet's ability to do what it does, um, you think it's something similar to what the Nexus was? Well, I think the this story has the same limitations or the same plot holes that the Nexus story does. And that's how did they get out? They just wish themselves out? Well, then you're not really out. You're just thinking you're out, you know? Generations had the same problem. Just, you know, how, Kirk was able to – Kirk and Picard were just able to wish themselves out and they, they were out versus wishing that they had families and things like that. Well, at least the good thing about this is when they, quote, get out of the 
the altered reality, the, um, the generated reality, the illusion, whatever, they're on the planet's surface. You know, it's only been like, like, like an hour or something has gone by, and they can beam up normally. Right, but how were they in able the, to beam in up? In the generations there? thing, that was, <laughs> that was a bit more extreme. Yeah, because because this this thing could have been all illusion on the on the planet in this issue, but in generations you got Kirk existing in like a stasis or something and going, uh, you know, decades into the future and still not aging. Um, you well, got people old. physically transporting, well, <laughs> <laughs> and fat too, but um, uh, but in that one people are physically transporting places and and traveling time. In the real world, I mean, right. doing yeah, it within the dream world that isn't a problem. But in the real world, people really moved, and people physically and through time moved with the nexus, which made that harder to swallow for me. Right, I could buy that maybe Kirk, you know, was able to travel forward in time because he was in this little pocket universe. But I, I didn't ever buy that Picard was able to go back in time to deal with Soren. Uh, because he he failed the first time. Yeah. But anyways, uh, no, but, I, I but, think but this you're story. Okay? So you're okay with traveling forward in time, but you're not good with traveling backward in time. And I wasn't good. I wasn't. I wasn't okay with uh, them being able to get out of the nexus. Just like I'm not okay with these three being able to get off this this dream planet. Well, um, yeah. I, I'm all I'm just saying is I'm more okay with them getting out of it here. Although at the beginning of this issue, which by the way I was not digging at all, at the beginning of the issue it was just stinking. I mean it was just seeming like it's just a rehash of sh- hash of shore leave. Uh, the you know the, the 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 season one episode or was it season two? It was I, I thought it was season one, but who knows? Um, I mean right. I mean they were even mentioning it in the story. And that actually led to some of the events that happened. So, oh my God, they're retreading the idea, and they're even retreading some of the threats that right. were going on. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, can't they have a new idea? But even now, though I'm not crazy about the issue overall, it got better in my opinion because quickly I start. I, well, quickly I started to realize, like, like at the beginning when uh, when McCoy is really going nuts so about uh about wanting to save sulu and it's like mccoy are you an idiot come on that wasn't the real sulu come on you've been through this drill before that wasn't the real sulu i mean he pops up out of nowhere uh you know with no shirt on and he ends up getting killed it's like obviously that's not sulu what is wrong with you man and then i'm then i'm starting to think oh he really doesn't know and then later kirk doesn't really know so they started slipping into kind of like an inception thing where the dreamer doesn't always – loses the ability to be able to distinguish between the dreamland and reality. And that's a problem. And I, and I thought that was making it more interesting for me. It, uh, it would have been more interesting if, if they would have logically explained how they were able to overcome it. Yeah, well, it was mostly Spock, you know, Spock's logic. Well, was Spock able to mind meld with them too so that they didn't see the dream anymore? Because I still don't buy that 
McCoy was able to just beam up because Scotty or because Spock says beam back to the Enterprise. Because that to me more is planting an idea in McCoy's head, and he thinks that he beamed up to the Enterprise. The inception of an idea. <laughs> well, um, the way I read it, it was Spock using his cold, cool logic to keep his own head on straight. And then being able to, uh, like a great debate coach or debate debater, uh, eventually make Kirk and Spot and McCoy see the logic in what is going on and recognizing that things are not right. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree with your point too. But you know. right, I, I I get that you know Super Spock was able to make things seem back to normal, but I mean whatever was keeping them from contacting the ship. At the beginning, yep. How did that suddenly go away, and then everybody was be able to beam back up? No, no problem. That's a good point. The 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 tricorder didn't uh, work 100 percent right. They thought, and they couldn't uh, raise the ship. Right. Um. Uh. So once they were able to cut through using uh, coaching techniques from Spock, the cold cool <laughs> logic, um, they were able to overcome the illusions. Uh. But yeah, you, I mean, you you have to you have to accept that premise for them to get past the illusions that made it seem like the communicators weren't working. When in actuality they were, right. they just couldn't recognize it. Yeah, the cage. Exactly. I mean, just like the cage episode, the phasers exactly. really were melting the rock, but they didn't see it. Exactly, they were not allowed to perceive reality. Right. Well, okay. I'm not going to argue with you because I just really, really did not like this issue. <laughs> well, look, it's a lame issue. No two ways about that. Uh, and Spock's <laughs> explanation for how this planet does the things it does is is the lamest element of the entire thing. But um, well, should we mention hey, what, what he thinking... says in case somebody hadn't read the book? Uh, he, he, sure. You want to give it a shot? Um, he said that it was physical residue left over from the uh, Big Bang, the creation of the universe, right? Right. And so, that this solid matter was able to take form, and then now it just creates whatever the yeah. person near it wishes. Exactly. So in the same way that the universe came into being, and the solid matter and liquid and gas and whatever from the original Big Bang's plasma or whatever... Um, in the same that same way, uh, this planet is able to uh, um, create reality guided by the energy of people's thoughts. So yeah, <laughs> great, sounds great. Thanks, Bach. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, should have just you should have just given a BS answer like the like the Nexus was. Don't even try to explain what it is. <laughs> it's a ribbon in space that if you go into it, you go into your own fantasy. Yeah. They never even tried to explain what it was. And you know what? <laughs> it would have been as lame as this explanation from Spock, so I'm glad they didn't try. Yeah, I would have rather seen some butt-headed theologians on, on this planet. <laughs> or Q or something. Something. To, a better explanation. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I think we've beaten this one up enough. Uh, what else do you have? Um, really, nothing else. There, I don't think there's anything else to say. So, just to defend my little joke at the beginning, did this not remind you of some of those gold key that we did, like the the planet quick change and 
things like um, that where the whole planet would change on at a moment's notice. <laughs> uh, it did not remind me of Gold Key. I got to tell you, until you mentioned Gold Key in, 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 in this, I was not thinking Gold Key. But now that you mentioned Gold Key, uh, sure, yes. <laughs> because, because a lot of it, what was in here was, was lame. And it's like, <laughs> and that that's what Gold Key is mostly lame. Oh, oh, come on! But but where Gold Key, I will forgive because it was a product of its time. Yeah, this one I have a harder time forgiving because they're coming out with some darn good comic books at this time. Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of off-putting that they just throw this one in there. Yeah, it's true. But I will say this in its defense, and this is the only thing I will say in its defense. In a lot of the other issues, it's like. It's the enemy of the week, uh, whether it, hap- it happens to be the Klingons coming into the picture, or the Romulans coming into the picture, or the uh, or, or the or the meatball spaceship aliens <laughs> coming into the, the picture. Um, you know, it's like all this conflict, conflict, conflict. Um, I don't know. It was just seeming like, in some ways, it was nice to get a little break from that. But yeah, uh, and maybe I was a little jaded because. The the cover promised a resurrection of oh, David yeah. Marcus, and yep. and this is no resurrection. He was only in two panels or three panels or whatever it was, and yeah. it didn't really have much to say. Yep. Other than yes, Dad, whatever you say, Dad, I'm following your footsteps, Dad. Great idea, Dad. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, at, at the beginning, looking at the cover, I was saying, how the heck, David Marcus coming back? That's one thing, and a Starfleet uniform. What? What? Yeah, I but know. I mean, it was his his shirt's all tattered. The the bridge is all tattered. And I'm like, oh, okay, so there's going to be a story here. Yeah, so, but nope. yeah, but that was BS too. Yeah, oh, it was BS. Yeah, because inside, you know, in the dream, sure, there's threats and stuff, but you know, the ship isn't exploding. So, nope. Anyway, all right. So. More more issue cover manipulation. Damn it. <laughs> okay, so uh, should we move on to number 35? Let's go. Okay. So, issue number 35 is titled Divide and Conquer. It is a multi-issue extravaganza. And this particular first issue of the series was published early September of 1992. Howard Weinstein, one of my favorite writers, is the is the writer. Rod Wingham is the penciler. Bob Pinaha is doing letters. Arnie Starr is the inker. Colorist is Tom McCraw. And the editor is Kim Yale. The cover is dominated by an odd-looking alien that is reminiscent of Egyptian pyramid wall drawings. A roughly humanoid, upright shape, but with a horse-like head and hooves uh, for hands. To underscore the strangeness of the alien, it has four eyes and four arms. The number of legs is unknown from this picture, since it's wearing a long purple robe with gold-colored shoulder fins. At the feet of the alien is a battle scene of multiple spaceships bombarding a city with densely packed buildings. To each side of the burning city are the heads of Captain Sulu and Kirk looking concerned. At the top of the page, the wording, the Tabukan Syndrome, is written. The story begins 
in the Tabukin system near the Romulan neutral zone. Two alien ships are above a green planet. In the ship, we overhear a conversation between the captain of the ship and his lieutenant. They speak of carrying the weapons of their world so long trained on their planetary neighbor, Tabuk 4, but now being transported to their destruction. They are carrying out actions that they hope will lead to a lasting peace. Suddenly, two ships of unknown design decloak and attack the Tabukan ships. They are told to give up their cargo of weapons or be destroyed. They surrender. Meanwhile, at a Federation starbase, Captain Sulu is walking onto the bridge of the Excelsior, his new command. The Enterprise command staff are there to greet him. Well wishes and gifts are given to the freshly minted captain and old friend. Commander Janice Rand is also on the bridge, along with the rest of Sulu's new command staff. Janice reports a message from Admiral Jawless is coming in, which is canceling their previous orders and assigning both the Enterprise and the Excelsior to the Tabukan system. The two captains and first officers meet the Admiral in the Starbase briefing lounge. Both ships are being dispatched because Tabuk 3 and 4 are new members of the Federation and are very close to the Romulan Empire. Their strategic importance is paramount and they are just emerging from a 200-year war into the bright light of a fragile peace brokered by the Federation. The arms race that has gone for over 200 years has produced a huge stockpile of ordnance, and very effective ordnance at that. In order to build ever more destructive weapons, they sacrifice developing truly useful tech like Star, like warp engines that could give them interplanetary travel capabilities. An unknown third party has stolen a sizable portion of the deadly Tabukan warheads as they were being transported for destruction. Romulans are suspected, but no evidence has been found to tie them into the theft. The Federation wants to demonstrate their support for the Tabukans and that they will put up with no interference from outsiders. Two starships should send that message loud and clear. As the Enterprise prepares for departure, Kirk discovers the Robin Curtis incarnation of Savik has joined the Enterprise crew for this mission as helmsman. On the journey, Kirk and Spock have a game of three-dimensional chess and discuss the mission with McCoy. Kirk informs McCoy that the warheads cannot be dismantled like most weapons because they are made using the highly unstable trisolium compound. It's so unstable that the trisolium warheads need to be detonated in space where the radiation can dissipate harmlessly. Ahura reports a medical emergency call from the colony on Epsilon Cottage has just come in. It's odd that so far the colony is not acknowledging her responses to their request for help. They decide the Enterprise will divert to the colony while the Excelsior continues on to Tabuk. The diversion will be made as short as possible, then they will get to Tabuk immediately. As the two starships go their separate ways, a cloaked Maroon ship observes. Captain Vodrin 
sends a message to their supreme leader who is on a Romulan ship in the Tabuk system. They will attack the lone Excelsior when it arrives in the Tabuk system. The supreme Maroon leader is trying to impress the Romulan commander named Jarakus. They want a partnership with the Romulans, but Jarakus is not so fast to ally the Empire to the Maroons. The trap has been laid by the clever Maroons, so the supreme leader is working on overcoming the Romulan objections. At Epsilon Katage, Captain Vodrin is telling the captain of another of his four-ship battle group that they will remain close to Epsilon Katage in case they need to gas the colony again if the Enterprise comes and leaves too soon. The Enterprise must not rejoin the Excelsior too soon before the ambush in Tabuk can claim its prize. The Enterprise arrives at Epsilon Katage and Kirk initiates communication to what the medical emergency is. Meanwhile, the Excelsior enters the Tabuk system. Sensors indicate the weapons disposal ships are where they should be. Suddenly, four unidentified ships come out from nowhere and start attacking the Tabuk ships. Captain Sulu orders an intercept course and opens a ship-wide channel saying, All hands to battle stations! To be continued. We got some action going here, huh? Yeah, we do. Captain Sulu. Captain Sulu. Uh, something I really like about this issue, uh, and I think you've mentioned it in other issues in the past, they do a great job of spelling out the ship's sounds. So, toot! So, <laughs> I, I like how they're, they're spelling that out and doing the lettering. All right. Because it's so accurate. I mean, you read that and you go, that's it. That is the sound that they make when they're trying That's to true. hail people. Where in particular were you, like when uh, page fourteen, when Rand gets that call? Uh, was it Rand there? It's page fourteen. Oh yeah, that is true. Yeah, and it really dominates the page, and 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 they've done the lettering just right between uh, Kirk and McCoy. I like right. it. Right, and they yeah, I like the different uh, the different fonts for the two and the ooh, but the we has that. Uh... <laughs> Like ghostly look, so it's like, uh, right in the middle. So it's like, it looks more—it looks more like trill or something, and more vibrating or something. I don't know. What yeah, no, it's cool. I like that. Yeah, I uh, I actually enjoyed this this issue. Yeah, me too. We have some interplanetary intrigue going on, which is funny because when I started reading this, I misremember not liking this storyline, but. Rereading it, and you know, we've only read the first two, but I like it. Yeah, me too. I think he does a good job. Uh, Howard Weinstein does a good job with some of these um, scenario he paints because he does interplanetary intrigue things like this pretty well in some of the other uh, issues he's penned. Right. So, just so long as it, you know, just so long as it ends right, you know, don't disappoint me at the end. Howard. So. Right. And they're really amping up the alien creatures. Right. I, I mean, right. I, 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 and I don't mean to derail what you were saying, but I just, I just like that it's, you know, the aliens truly look aliens versus somebody with something slept on their forehead. Oh, right, right. A- and I really like that, too. Yeah. Well, why don't you uh, describe a little bit what Captain Vodrin and the uh, 
other Maroons look like? Insect-looking people? Uh, yeah, kind of. Were, were you going for something in particular? Well, no, I mean, um, they, they, they actually kind of look like ghouls. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess they, they have some insectoid characteristics to them, but they've got red eyes, uh, green skin, uh, they've got like a jetting under, you know, uh, lower jaw, and the, these like, tot, not tusks, but really long, uh, do you call them incisors when on the bottom? I don't think so, but I well, don't know what they're called. Re- reverse fangs. So they they got the, <laughs> I mean, they got the fangy kind of long, thin, nasty looking, uh, fangy kind of teeth, but they're they're coming from the bottom. Right. So they, they they almost look like some kind of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer ghoul or something, or you know that kind of thing. <laughs> they, they're, they're nasty looking. But not only that, but also the uh, the admiral that uh, that gives them the mission is very alien. Oh, that's true. Good point. Yeah. I don't even know what kind of species he is. No, uh, I have not. I, I do not recognize that species. And uh, definitely that 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 the Tabokans, Tabakans, Tabukans, um, right. they are really weird looking. Yeah, I was wanting to go back through here and see if it ever showed both uh, both sets uh-huh. of eyes at the same time. Right. But so yeah, so like a horse, like a, like a goat, like a whatever. They've got you know eyes on both sides of their head, but uh, so you can't. It's hard to see them both at one shot since they're on other sides of the heads. But they got two, and that's weird. It just looks so weird. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, when I first started reading it, I was like, oh, they got like a flounder face where their faces ah. are flat, and they got two. Both of their eyes are on the same side, and then they do turn their head, so they definitely got four sets of eyes. Right. Right. Yep. It's very interesting. And four but you arms. said you said they have hooves. Uh, those look well, like hands. Well, I know. Me. I I I went ahead and called them hooves, but that's not really quite right. Um, they're actually a little bit more. They got they kind of have three stubby fingers coming off, so it it, it kind of looks like a dog's foot a little bit, but 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 the finger parts are longer, so they really look like they could grasp something, but. Well, they show them grasping things, so they definitely have the opposable yeah, thumb. Opposable thumb, yeah. Yep. Yeah, but but it's not quite the same as a, especially on the cover. If you look at it on the cover, that does not look like a typical kind of human hand. Nope. That's what makes it, you know, even if it does look a little cheesy um, or, you know, maybe cheesy is the wrong word. It, it looks unique. And so... At, at at one point I like it, and another part I'm like, yeah, it looks a little hokey, but yeah, but at least they're out there trying to do something different. Exactly. So I agree. Because you know the the Nazgul were aliens, but they looked like humans, yellow skinned yeah, humans. So right. it's kind of cool to see them introduce two new races that are truly alien. Indeed. So how'd you like the Romulan ship? Is that the exact same style from? Next generation? Oh, well, no. That's what's cool about it. So it has elements of the next gen Romulan ship combined with uh, Taz era uh, Klingon uh, cruiser. Right. So the, the, the front of it, where the bridge is, looks like a typical Klingon cruiser with that, with that kind of long uh, neck coming out. And then forward, and then has that bulbous head on it. So that looks all Klingon. 
but behind that, like in the body of the ship, it looks a lot like the next-gen um, Romulan Warbirds. Right, with that big open space yeah. underneath the ship. Exactly. Like, right. So there was kind of like two two parts that come together and, and kind of have an open thing in the middle. Yeah. I, I, I liked it. I, you know, as being a ship guy and a, you know, and a weapons guy, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed that, that kind of crossover design that kind of showing where, where they're going to be going in the next, uh, what, 70 years, whatever. Right. And I, and I don't mean to take us off subject, but last week, Brian mentioned that they did that in the original series because somebody stepped on the model. Yeah. <laughs> I, I meant to press him on that because I don't remember don't remember that story. Did did you know what he was talking about? Um well I, I think he said that they had to transport the model or something. Is that what he was saying? And then in transporting it from one place to another, uh it was it was destroyed. It was it was damaged beyond repair. Supposedly, so okay. so rather than, they didn't have the money to uh, <laughs> to make another one, so they said, "Hey, use the Klingon one." And then they got that little piece of BS line about they're using Romulan yes. or Klingon ships. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, the Romulans are using Klingon design. It's <laughs> like, come on, Spock. I, mean, I buy most most things from you, but <laughs> that one's hard to buy. That one's ah, come on. So I, I did not know exact. I just figured they they had budget cuts or something, but um, but yeah. But why they, wouldn't they keep using the same one? The, I mean, the, the old model, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Or or maybe it was maybe not the maybe a question. You know, maybe that was the truth. I'm not not calling into doubt. Although you might have been, uh, Brian. No, I wasn't. But, I, I meant to really ask him because I'd never heard that before. Well, any I kind guess of... if you're listening, Brian, give us a call. <laughs> Hey, we're not simulcasting, though. So any kind of um, special effects shots, I mean, whether you got the model or not, any special effects shots are going to cost money. So did they just use the same even footage and then just, like, like done a little mirror effect or something, you know, shot it in a mirror so it comes from the other side, coming from right to left instead of left to right or, you know, something, you know, to, you know. I don't think so because there was always – there was more than one, so – uh, yeah, I don't know, and and it really has nothing to do with this this issue. No, I just no, we're going a little. You were bringing up the ships, time. and I was like, oh man, I never did ask him about that. Yeah, and you know, you just said you were a ship guy, so I thought maybe you knew. I'm a ship guy, but no, I, I don't know about that particular nuance. But yeah, but I, I I really I really liked that they they kind of did that with this ship, and then I also like that they actually address the Excelsior's transwarp drive. Oh, me too. I like that. Yes. And they didn't have to, but no. it was a nice little touch. Right. So in the beginning when uh, Scotty and others were giving Sulu gifts, one of the things that Scotty gave Sulu, Captain Sulu, uh, were the original parts that he removed from the transwarp engine in uh, in Star Trek 4. 3. 3. 3? Okay, 3. Yes, 3. That was it. So, uh, and then they, and then Scotty says... You know, they finally got those stupid transwarp drives on out and got real engines in it. So. so, why do you think they revisited the whole transwarp drive in the next generation? Well, I, I don't know. They wanted to, uh, you know, somebody's making up a story and they said, "Hey, 
think I've heard enough about Transwarp. I don't yeah, know. We'll, we'll give it to the Borg, and we'll just say that they perfected it. Well, okay. So, um, and I know we talked about, I, I'm pr- 99% sure we talked about this before, but that the what they were attempting to do with the Excelsior is indeed what they end up doing, you know, 70 or 80 years later, the Borg, uh, in Next Gen. The, the, those were the same technologies. It was. It is supposed to be the same. Okay. No, I'm asking. Well, I don't know. Oh, oh, oh! I thought you were saying it was. Oh no, I thought that's what. <laughs> <laughs> they I call it. They call you were saying it was. Sport, but I, I never knew if, if it was just because that sounds cool and they went with it, or if they really yeah, was supposed to be the same technology. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I did not know they were supposed to be the same technology, but yeah, they are using the same made-up word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe they did. I, I didn't realize they were trying to form some kind of a, a conduit to travel through. But Well <laughs> Star Trek the... two? I mean Star Trek three? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they actually say that. Yeah, they they don't go into detail. But... Who knows, man. We're trying to yeah. second guess people who who wrote making this. Up, they're making up did... stuff. Yeah, they were just making it up. Yeah. Let somebody else later tie it all together. And what about Savick? You you said it's the Robin Curtis version, which to me is 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 Savick. the best version of Savick. Yeah, um, it's the one we've seen the most. Um, and when you say most, you just mean in one movie plus five seconds of another, uh, plus multiple issues. Oh, okay, okay. You know, comic book issues. Uh, personally, I think Christy Alley was pretty hot as Savick. I thought she was pretty cute. Yeah, but um, she didn't have any. Something? She didn't have any Vulcan features, so I, I always have a hard time buying that she's Vulcan. Yeah, yeah. So Curtis does have a longer face, a little bit more like like. And the eyebrows. Memoryish. I mean, uh, Christy Alley just had her normal eyebrows. Oh, did really? Oh, I didn't notice that. Hmm. Yeah, that was. Did she make that part of the contract? That shouldn't have been. That should not have been allowed to stand. I don't know. I think. I have no idea. Wasn't there. Hmm. Oh, well. I did not notice that. But anyways, I like that she was there. Um, I like that they because they need somebody in the Helmsman station. But right. Isn't she a science officer? Well, Kirk was an engineer, so. Oh, okay. So. You... Uh, I, yeah, they can move around a little bit. Jordy was – ah! <laughs> Jordy was a Helmsman, and then he turned into a engineer. They move yeah. around, man. They're flexible people. You know, it's weird that that helmsman station, you know, Worf was a helmsman, chief of security. Yeah. <laughs> uh, O'Brien was a helmsman, head engineer of Deep Space Nine. That's a that's a pretty popular spot. It is popular to leave. Although, <laughs> okay, so Sulu went to cap to become captain. I'm sure right. Tom Paris would have went somewhere eventually. Although he did spend time in, in sick bay sometimes, but... He, and what what was the explanation for that again, anyway? For what I mean, the, he's the helmsman. Didn't he have enough to do? Anyway. Oh, yeah, 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 where he was the nurse. Uh, yeah, he was helping out in sick bed. Yeah, that was, that was silly. Uh, I, I guess he had some medical experience or training or something. But yeah, still, I, that I, seemed I don't forced. Buy that. that seemed forced to me. Anyway. <sighs> 
<laughs> so um, I think it was the last thing I have to say about this issue. At least I think it's the last thing. The last thing I wrote anyway, unless something comes to my mind, is I thought Kirk was acting pretty supportive of uh, Sulu's promotion through this issue. But then there's the spot where McCoy is jumping down his throat about, oh, deep down, you don't really want Sulu to get his own command because you're the, you know, you're, you're, you used to be in the guy that, that calls all the shots. And it's like, I thought Kirk was pretty good through, uh, through this issue and supporting and, you know, saying bravo Sulu. Yeah. I didn't get that either. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a lot more like maybe William Shatner in reality, but uh, it doesn't sound like Kirk in this issue, at least that I, that I didn't get that impression from what they wrote in word or in picture. Yeah, yeah maybe it was something off-screen. <laughs> Could be. He was really bad-mouthing him off-screen. That must be it, and we just never saw it. <laughs> you know, if I was Kirk, I'd be saying, get off my back, old man! Come on, I've been doing nothing but, but being a nice guy about this. Come on. <laughs> uh... All right. Anything else? Nothing. Yeah, I think it's the next issue where I have a comment that's kind of similar to just a random conversation that two people have that I thought came out of nowhere. Yeah. Okay. So I guess uh, I was going to bring it up now, but I think I should hold off. Hold off, man. All right. So issue number 36 came out late September of 1992. Uh, it is called the Tabukan Syndrome Part 2 Battle Stations. Uh same writing and art staff, so I won't go through all that. All right. So the cover has the green-skinned maroon alien looking at a very alien uh, ship console of some sort with lots of gauges. Um, and in the center of this console is a large display that's obviously some sort of targeting screen. And within the crosshairs is the Excelsior. The story starts off with the Excelsior heading towards a large space battle. It seems that the two ships of the Tabukan convoy are being attacked by four alien craft. After a few well-placed shots, Sulu and his crew are able to deter the aliens from their attack. As the aggressive ships depart, they start to vanish within a cloaking field. We flash to the Enterprise, and it has arrived at Epsilon Kitja but they are unable to contact the surface and find out the source for the distress call. They're surprised to find another ship in orbit. It's an older, decommissioned hospital ship called the USS Saltoris. The uh, registered commanding officer is a Dr. Abigail Wilson. McCoy is shocked to hear this news since he and Abby go way back. We flash back to the Excelsior. Mr. Bergen is informing Sulu that they should be able to track the cloaked ships since the level of sophistication is not on the same level as the Romulan and Klingon cloaking devices. The crew speculate that these aliens uh, that were attacking the Tabukans might be Romulan cohorts of some sort. Perhaps the Romulans are giving them their outdated tech for their support. Sulu is contacted by the bridge and inform that the two Tabukan leaders are ready to beam aboard. Once aboard, the two Tabukans tell Sulu that their weapons uh, that they've used against each other for all these years cannot be beamed away without causing them to detonate. 
With these alien attacks and the stealing of their weapons, the Tabukan leaders fear that if they cannot dismantle them safely, that their people will find some reason to start using them again against each other. Engineer Lucas speaks up. He asks for permission to go off and do some research to find a way to teleport the warheads. Sulu grants him permission, and he heads out. We flash back to the Enterprise. McCoy, Kirk, and Spock are still talking about Abby Wilson. They learn that she was drummed out of Starfleet for helping a group of injured aliens uh, that were attacking a colony. She not only helped them to survive against direct orders, but she actually helped them escape from a mob of vengeful colonists. Kirk orders McCoy to make contact with her and try to find out what's going on on the planet. Back on the Excelsior, Sulu and Commander Rand are engrossed in a fencing duel. Sulu drops his guard, and Rand wins the match when she makes a comment about how Engineer Lucas said Sulu needed Kirk's help to find the command chair. As they leave the gym, Rand tells Sulu that he's been a little sheltered over the years since he's worked only under one commander. She tells him that he will need to earn his crew's respect. In the Enterprise transporter room, Dr. Wilson beams aboard. She is a handsome-looking older woman, and she and McCoy quickly start calling each other by their old nicknames for one another. And they are Old Grouch for her and Crank for him. I don't know if old was always part of it, but that's what she that's what he calls her. Sure is now. <laughs> exactly. Uh the two of them uh leave the transporter room and head to the briefing room to meet up with Kirk. There is a some brief tension between Wilson and Kirk uh in regards to her aiding the enemy back in the day, uh, but that's quickly put aside when Wilson explains what's happening on the planet. The colonists claim that a cloud from space entered the planet's atmosphere and started to make them sick. Spock says that there's no evidence of such a cloud, and Wilson reminds him that there's no evidence to prove that there was not one. Wilson asks for the Enterprise's aid. Kirk says that he will have to discuss it and he'll get back with her. She advises him not to wait too long and departs the room in a huff. Once alone, the terrific trio discuss their options. McCoy admits that if he was in her shoes all those years ago, he might have done the same thing about disobeying orders in order to save lives. Kirk and Spock speculate that perhaps the cloud is not a natural phenomenon, and speculate on who would gain from the colony's distress. Kirk goes ahead and gives McCoy permission to help with the aid towards the colony. But he asks McCoy to keep his eyes open. The Excelsior and the Tabukan vessels are preparing to continue their journey. The Romulan leader and the Marone ruler get word that the fleet is heading out. They relay the order towards the attack fleet to go ahead and decloak and start the attack. Just then, ten attack ships appear around the Excelsior and open fire. To be continued. The action keeps coming. Yep. Wait, wait, ten bloody ships? Ten ships attacking at once? Right, so I guess his his way of tracking those those ships didn't quite work out. <laughs> well, they did say, oh, we're detecting something. <laughs> like two <Yeah>. seconds. Ten! <laughs> yeah, a little more heads up there, uh, Swami. Thank you. 
Now that guy's name is they call him Burger in this uh or Berger in this episode. Right. Is he the same guy that in the Voyager episode flashback uh where he has the spirit of that little girl's death in a repressed memory? Is that the same guy? Because it kind of looks the know. same. I did, maybe. Do you even know what I'm talking about? I don't remember that episode. Oh, you uh, don't remember? I don't remember the, the episode. I don't remember the character. Oh, okay. But we've seen guys with beards around uh, in the past. Right. Uh, but I, I don't. I, I did. I did not. Re, I did not identify where he was from specifically. Right. Well, he was like the security officer. I mean, he was in Star Trek Six, and I thought he was like a security officer of some sort. Huh. And if this guy is in that station here, then I, I thought he was the same person, but I don't think his name was Berger or whatever is Berger. Mm. Anyways, I'm just wondering where the hell Tuvok is. Yeah. <laughs> bring on Tuvok! Bring on Tuvok! Because, I mean, he is supposed to be there. Well, was he there from day one? Hmm. Like, maybe he came uh, soon. <laughs> he's in there Bye. quite yet. Well, okay. So how <laughs> I know he's been in Starfleet a long time, Tuvok that is. Right. But um how far back oh are you you're just referring to the fact that Tim Russ or whatever his name is. Uh, no, I'm talking about the episode flashback where um yeah, I, Tuvok I is, is remembering that he was actually aboard the Excelsior. Cool. I, I remember there was a a Captain Sulu uh, episode like that. I just don't remember the details. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, in a in a retcon type fashion, right. we're supposed to believe that Tuvok's walking around the ship at this time, too. Well, long-lived Vulcan. What do you want? Right. He didn't age, whereas Spock, he, he aged pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess in his defense, he did die, get regenerated as a little baby, aged really fast on the Genesis planet, and got sent whisked away right at the right time. Yeah, of course you do. You missed. You skipped over a little thing. Oh yeah, which part? Uh, where supposedly you know he got himself a little loving from Savik. <laughs> that was kind of an important one to skip. Well, that didn't really affect your aging, now did it? <laughs> I'm <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Different she, topic, I suppose. She takes the years out of you. You, you. you were going. You were going over the high points. I just thought I'd mention. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I meant to mention that in yesterday's uh, or last week's episode, where Savick showed up in Dead of Honor. I wanted to make a comment about. I wonder if she had little Spock baby yet. Oh, little Spock baby. <laughs> so what happened? Uh, yeah, I, I did. I did not read. These uh, expanded universe uh, episodes that that or books that talk about that kind of thing. But what happened to Spock, baby? Uh, they they never actually did it. That was actually a, a plot point that they were going to use in the movie. Okay, okay. But it, okay. it never got past that. It was a deleted scene in Star Trek Four where when they're leaving to go back to Earth and Savick's there. Kirk says, "Are you okay in your condition?" or something like that. But th they cut it out of the movie. Okay. Fine. Whatever. So I'm surprised about, uh, or it's cool, to, it's kind of cool and kind of, eh, to see Janice Rand in the, uh, as first officer. Oh, I love, I love Janice Rand as the first yeah, officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. Uh, I'm just good. glad she got some love in, in the movies. I mean, you know. Oh, 
where Janice got some screen she time. She got some screen time. Okay. Right. I thought we were back on the spot. Sonic <laughs> thing again. Okay, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, it was good that she got to be, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, briefly. Mean, she, yeah, she in, wasn't uh, in all three seasons of the original show, but she yeah. was a pretty memorable part of the original series. Uh, yeah, yep. And I think she had one scene in Star Trek The Motion Picture where I think she's just like looking out a window or something. Exactly, right. So it was nice to see her in that role, and then it was nice that they brought her back for the flashback episode of Voyager where she actually, you know, a, a lot of that episode, she's she's the person that's dealing with, you know, new recruit Tuvok and things like that. It's actually a really good episode. You should watch it. Another one to put on the list of ones to go back and watch. But yeah, it, so you liked it but didn't like it. What, the episode? No, that Rand was here. I I kind of liked that, kind of didn't. It just, I don't know, it just seemed a little forced. I don't know. And plus the way they've drawn her. I mean, it's good that they're showing her older, because she would have been. Um, it's just, I don't know, she just wasn't very attractive. Sorry. <laughs> well, then I'm not going to say she looked just like she did in the movie. <laughs> well, she might have. They put her in that weird, like, Rambo bandana, so that doesn't really help her for a lot of this issue when she's doing the fencing. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, she's got an okay shape for her age. It's just that something about the face is just a little little too matronly. I don't know. She reminds me of, like, I don't know, a, a librarian or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Oh. So it, it was her scene right after the fight with uh, Sulu, the the fencing, not, not a real fight. But yeah. after they fence for a while, she tells Sulu that he doesn't know what it's like to work with new commanders because he's only worked with Captain Kirk. Right. Well, that's not true. I mean, he did report to Com- Captain Decker there for a while, and I think that he would have had the same feelings towards Captain Decker that, that – his crew is having towards him now. Very good point. Like, who's this new guy telling me what to do? Exactly. You're no Kirk. Sorry. Right. So I found it a little odd that she's having that conversation with him. Good point. But most people would not have thought of that. Um, But good point. (laughs) I know I didn't think of it. Say it ain't so, kid. I'm saying it so. (laughs) I mean, that, that, that was, that was, was that your other throwaway conversation? That yeah, that was that, that was the yeah. one that I thought was like an unneeded conversation. Exactly, it was a, it was more filler, right? And it, I I thought it was out of place because Rand knows that he has had other captains, but yeah, but sure. I guess the you know, the average reader might not remember Captain Decker's tenure. They probably wouldn't, or the fact that Captain Kirk at one point was off actually captaining the Excelsior. Uh, yeah, the Excelsior during. During the comic books in between two and three, right, right, yeah. So, but I don't I, think this continuity follows that at all. No, I just thought I would <laughs> throw another little bit of sand in the uh, gasoline. You really need to read those. Those are actually some pretty good books, and they have Christy Alley Savick throughout the whole thing. So, oh, okay, you know, so you're used to seeing Robin Curtis. You'll uh, be able to see some Christy Alley action. What? And and I I like them both in the role. So my last comment I have on this whole book is uh, the Romulan commander's skunk hair. I don't really understand why he has black hair, but with that one little white stripe. Uh, I don't know. 
somebody's decision. <laughs> but when he's at a distance, it kind of looks like he might have like a white mohawk. I mean, just if you look at him when he's standing away from the the camera. I agree, and, and you know those uh, those kind of um, those helmets that some right. of the other Romulans wear that are, are white or silver, whatever in color. It almost looks like he's got a little helmet on or something. Yeah, I could see that. Where it looks like the sheen from a helmet. Right. Right. But but no, it's his hair. Yep, he has skunk hair. Exactly. <laughs> what if he smells? I bet he smells. Oh. I, I wouldn't tell him he smelled because he'd probably kill me. Probably. He'd take a disruptor out. He doesn't look like a nice guy. No, he doesn't. I liked how these two issues were... were Seemed a lot more realistic, a little bit more plausible, a lot more plausible than issue 34. Um, I enjoyed that. <laughs> you um, don't like the tree of life? The tree of life. No, uh, no. Leave David where he's at. Um, okay, that whole thing about Dr. Wilson. Yeah, what was up with that? I'm hoping like, that comes back. Talk about filler. <laughs> it's like... <sighs> It's like, for some reason, we got to stretch this to four issues. What can you do about that? Dr. Wilson. It's like, who cares? I mean, she's not even ex... Uh, or at least as far as we know, she's not even an ex-love interest of McCoy's. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, she, enough so that they had uh, pet names for each other. <laughs> they could have been co-workers. And they're, they're, yeah, can you, can you see being like in bed... You know, making sweet love and you calling each other that. Grouch, you old crank. Hey, crank, get off of me. Whatever. So, um, <laughs> I I just hope that uh, that this is set up, uh, and, that, a... and that in the next issues, I mean, the reason she's there will become clear, and it'll right. be worth it. Yeah, I'm really thinking that she's she's in on it. And that, oh, uh... oh, in league with the Romulans. Right, it just seemed very coincidental that she's just there. Oh, interesting theory. I think she's part of the delaying of the Enterprise. Oh. Well, then why is that Captain, um, Captain whatever his name is, the Marone, why is he sticking around then? He, he, he wants to take his crack at, uh, you know, capturing a, a Federation vessel too? Is that what he's doing? What's he yeah, doing? well, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just guessing. I don't, I don't really, I don't remember... I don't remember all that much about this story because it did come out a long time ago. Right, right. But like I said, when I read it the first time, I remember not liking it. But I also – I think I might have read it out of order because it was back when I wasn't – you know, I was a kid, didn't have a lot of money. So I didn't necessarily buy every issue. Some months I missed. And especially when you start cranking them out to, to yeah, right, a exactly. week or two a month. Yeah, for a month if I was trying to get the next gen to. You guys are trying to get too much money from me. Yeah. My allowance doesn't cover that many books. Exactly. What's wrong with you? I'm trying to follow the continuity. Anyways. So just, just I just kind of looked. Uh, this storyline doesn't end until issue number 40. Whoa! So really? Long one. Wow. Yep, it's long. Wow. Okay. Well, no wonder we got uh, Dr. Wilson around. Yeah. We got we got a lot of issues to fill up. <laughs> and looking at the cover of thirty nine, she's definitely there. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. Anyway, what else you got on this one? Um, I don't have anything else really. 
worth saying. Yeah. No. Nothing. It was good. I liked it. Yeah. Carrying the story along. Like it? Good. And putting Captain Sulu in his first command under an extremely stressful situation. How the heck is he going to get out of this? They're obviously inferior ships Excelsior, but still. Um, ten ships? That's a lot of ships. Right. And what, what's funny is that I guess a lot of people really want to focus on this timeline of yeah. uh, Sulu's first command. Because I think there's actually two different books that also talk about Sulu's first mission. So I find it funny that this is now the third version of his first mission. Well, it, wasn't there multiple versions of Kirk's first mission Outing. with the Enterprise? Yeah, of course. Yeah, never good enough. <laughs> Never get enough. And uh, what would you think about the cover? Out of the three covers, I like this one the best. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So, it, so the targeting thing. I mean, I know I have seen in one of the Star Trek films something like that. Star Trek Five. Was it Star Trek Five that did that? Yeah, where they had the periscope thing. Okay, but but the idea that those little um, those multiple lines were kind of like coming in from the sides and kind of targeting the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I remember seeing that somewhere before too. I think it looked, right. yeah, I, I like it. I like it. Yeah, and what's funny is that this this cover really reminds me of the cover from um, Star Trek issue number three, the one that we covered way back when. Um, in that in that one, it had. Uh, the Klingon captain from Star Trek Five mm-hmm. at his big periscope. Oh right. And then it shows what he's seeing in the periscope, which is that you know, that, that real that we round uh display with the little crosshairs in it. Not quite exactly like this, but like what we saw in Star Trek Five. Right. So I just kinda I like I don't know, I like that look that you Dig know it. it's really showing that they're, that they're about to get it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Photon torpedo up well, the tailpipe. There you go. Well, we'll have to see what these guys can do about breaching the shields. I'm sure that Excelsior has darn good shields. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, and what about the uh, Tabukans anyway? Are they just going to sit around there going, oh, help us? You know, or are they going to fight? Dang Maybe it. drop some of those super bombs on them. Exactly. You know, shove one of those up their tailpipes. Let's see what happens. I do like how they talk about how powerful those weapons are. That you know, that the reason why they're taking them so far away is because they actually, in mass, they could destroy a good chunk of space. Yeah. Oh, uh, they sound nasty. They do sound nasty. And I thought that was part of the reason they were trying to get their hands on them because they wanted to use them someplace else. Right. But uh, you know, maybe that's the case. Maybe not. All right, so uh, anything else? No, nothing else on this. Okay, so uh, real quick, we only got two months uh, for Expanded Universe instead of the normal three. Uh, A lot of comic books, so we won't go over those. But uh, as far as novels go, uh, The Next Generation had a novel called Imzadi by Peter David that came out in August of 92. Ah, Imzadi. Have you uh, read that one? Um, No, but I've listened to Imzadi 2 on audiobook. Oh, okay, yeah. That one's also by Peter David. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imzadi 1 uh, was 
where a older version of a Riker, um, like I think he's Admiral Riker, he wants to go back in time to prevent Troy's death and to make sure that the younger version of himself gets with uh, or stays with Troy. So he ends up using the Guardian of Forever to go back in time uh-huh. into like um, the Next Generation timeline. Right. Uh, it's um, actually it's really good. Cool. And the uh, September, the novel was an original series novel called Sanctuary by John Vornholt. And it was, you know, one of the little paperback ones. But anyway, so this one has to do with the, uh, there's a planet out there, you know, it's fabled or is it real? And it's a, a sanctuary so that anybody that goes there uh, is, is immune to um, any type of government. Uh, and Enterprise has to chase some some fugitive there. And it's holding some sort of secret. I, I haven't read it, but I really do like John Vornholt. Uh, he wrote a lot of the um, po- uh, pre-Nemesis books. They had a whole line called um, A Time To. So there was a time to die, a time to live, a time to... Um, I forgot what the other ones were. There was about seven of them. But John Vornholt, I think, wrote the first and the last one. Cool. I, I, I know the name. I've heard the name. I think uh, you've you might have read some of the Genesis Wave stuff. Oh yes, right. Yeah, he did those those four, uh, uh, and he's written quite a few. I, I like him. I just haven't read this one. Right. All right. So that's it. So if we don't have anything else, I guess uh, we can let you guys go. Uh, <laughs> let you guys go. You're dismissed. Yeah. Uh, dismissed so, class. What's that? Dismissed class. Yeah, Dismissed so, class. I'm sorry, I keep talking over you. Go ahead. <laughs> I just said dismissed class. Dismissed right. class. That's all. Um, yeah. So, and this is this is not too bad as far as uh, length. It's after such a long episode last week. It's nice to get a little shorter one this week. A little, little bit yeah. of a a break. Well, hopefully, we didn't record really long. Uh, no, not not too bad. Actually, it's like an hour and ten minutes, that uh, actually recording time, so that's not uh, bad. Yes, not bad at all. All right, so uh, come back next week, and we will do the Next Generation issues 34 through 36. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. <laughs> With Donovan and Ken this week. And only Donovan and Ken this week. <laughs> okay. Hello, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.